from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here this week in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this week's edition, the future of urban transport, the world's first cradle-to-cradle t-shirt, voices of corporate energy buyers from Verge 17, and what a chief innovation officer actually does. It's just an idea, this week on 350. It's September 29th, 2017. Welcome to this week's episode of Green Biz 350. I'm Joel McCower, and joining me only half a country away today is Heather Clancy. Hey, Heather. Hello. You're only half a country away. Where, pray tell, are you? Well, as I said earlier, I'm in St. Paul, Minnesota, and uh, we are uh, just having the last of our Green Biz Executive Network meetings for the month of September. And this one is being hosted by Ecolab, which is headquartered here in St. Paul. Now, do you know Ecolab? I know of Ecolab, but what is it that they do? Well, they're a very, very big company that's been around for 95 years, and they're uh, part of a lot of our lives, even though we may not know it. Ecolab provides water, hygiene, and energy technologies and services to industries like food, energy, healthcare, industrial, hospitality markets. They do a lot of water treatment and management, uh, process improvements and pollution control. They are deep, as it were, into water, and they, uh, whether it's... Uh, uh, and, and sanitation, too. So you may see Ecolab uh, dispensers uh, outside of restrooms where you have the the, the cl- hand cleanser, the waterless hand cleanser. Uh, that's just one branded part that you might see. You may see their trucks on the road. But they are involved with many, many, many companies uh, and uh, facilities, government, stadiums, and the like, where they're just making sure that the water that's used for us and for the uh, manufacturing and for energy plants is responsibly handled. And you were there for the GBAN meeting? Yes. So this is the GBAN is the Green Biz Executive Network. And uh, we've got about 20 companies here talking uh, about what they do and sharing ideas and best practices and answering each other's questions and basically leaning on one another for support and ideas. And uh, they're always great, great meetings. What about you, Heather? I mean, first of all, this is, uh, are you over the Verge conference of last week? That was pretty all-consuming. It was all-consuming. I've been sorting through my recordings and notes and um, following up on some story ideas and sort of heads down with uh, processing, if you will, and and thinking about all the great contacts that I made last week. It was a really super exchange of ideas and of passion, if you will. Events like that always make me feel re-energized, no pun intended, about what we're able to do and and telling the stories of all these great innovative uh, executives that are thinking about how things could be different. Yeah, and what's fun about it, too, is that it's not just a sitting and listening kind of event, although there is some of that. Uh, and we had some terrific main stage sessions and some even terrificer uh, breakouts, uh, almost 100 of them, I think, or 70 to 100 breakout sessions, some of which I just heard rave reviews about. Um, but there's also – we had these summits, um, these uh, half-day uh, roll-up-your-sleeves, you know, dig into some of the real challenges kinds of things where we'd get uh, – you know, 60, 70, 80, 100 people in the room to talk about urban transit and mobility or the circular economy or healthy and adaptive buildings. And then the other one 
is the Reba Summit, which you were a part of. Yes, and I, I again felt like my stories are now all set up for the rest of the year. I just uh, walked away thinking about the the topics that I need to cover more. I need to look far more closely at regulated markets and how corporate buyers can um, tap into renewables in those markets. And, and so I'm in the process of developing a couple stories there. Um, and, you know, just also following up on a, another theme that's becoming far more important is the, the idea of energy storage. You know, as we add more renewables, how do we take advantage of, of the intermittency and, and t- how do we take that and turn it into a, a reliability argument that can't be uh, poked holes in? So I, I, I'm really looking closely at energy storage and, and renewing also the microgrid dialogue. I, I hear that that was one of the best attended workshops at Verge and, um, you know, I think close to 100 people. So clearly a lot of interest in that. Yeah, and, and of course, we had a microgrid there. We build a microgrid every verge to power the event, and and uh, that's the heart, the hub of our uh, expo, the part of the event. And it really worked well. The, it functioned well, but also it just made for a good showcase where people could come and see uh, all the components, uh, solar, wind, storage, biomass, uh, a few other things, and see how it was powering the expo, how it was powering the car charging stations that we, because we had test drives of some hybrid and fuel cell and, and electric vehicles, and just how it all works. And I think you know this is, as you say, from the turnout we had at the at the microgrid summit, uh, this is becoming a real thing. And you know we've been this is our, I think seventh or sixth or seventh annual microgrid build out, and and so we've watched the state of the art from where things were definitely not plug and play to where they're very much plug and play. And I I think we're we're just, you know, sort of to your point, hitting that tipping point where uh, microgrids are going to start to be more prevalent. They're going to be powering uh, buildings, neighborhoods, uh, campuses, uh, military bases um, in in the industrial world. They're going to become primary power in the developing world by stringing together lots of smaller uh, technologies uh, and avoiding the whole central power plant thing to begin with. So it's, it's pretty exciting. That's definitely a thing I'm watching. We, I have a segment on uh, what's in the minds of, of uh, corporate energy buyers a little later in the program. And let's work our way towards that by starting with the Week in Review. So this week we had some news out of Walmart, which is not exactly a, <laughs> an unusual thing, but uh, he, this this time they are taking bold steps towards safer chemicals. So Boma Brown-West from EDF um, has written about the new policy, a policy of expansion, right? So they've, they've been working on on sustainable chemistry policy for, for some number of years. So this one is a, a new goal, reducing Walmart's chemical footprints by 10% by the year 2022. Uh, and that could affect more than 55 million pounds of priority chemicals. So really an expansion of some, some groundbreaking work that they've already been doing. But clearly, it's, it's great to see when, when someone keeps pushing the envelope, when a company like this keeps pushing the envelope. Yeah, this is something that's been uh, going on. And it's actually a little bit of a race to the top between Walmart and Target. I'm, I thought both companies would deny that and, and 
and and yet they would still say that ours is better than theirs. Um, but they've both been taking. In fact, they've worked, they've worked together. They came together a few years ago and had a summit uh, specifically related to uh, personal care products, uh, beauty, baby care, personal care, household cleaning products. Uh, in fact, uh, earlier this year, uh, Target uh, announced. Uh, a new chemical strategy, including some policies and goals for its products and operations. And so now Walmart's uh, upping the ante here. And as you said, it's going to affect 90,000 products from 700 suppliers. So this is good. And what was interesting, too, is is that the activist community, the ones that are, you know, looking at chemical chemicals in products and and pressuring companies to be more transparent and ultimately to reduce or eliminate them seem to like this. They seem to be uh, cheering Walmart on, which is uh, I think good for everybody because it's, you know, it's really challenging when when a company like Walmart or Target or also Best Buy, Costco, CVS, uh, all have been doing something around restricting harmful chemicals. When they make these commitments and the and the activist community either yawns or says, nope, that's not good enough. So this is very encouraging when there is some alignment mm-hmm. this way. Mm-hmm. It's encouraging and also is influential because, you know, when you know, when Walmart speaks to 700 global suppliers, right, and, and suggests <laughs> what they need to do, that those suppliers in turn are going to be affecting other retailers. So when you have, you know, it's the ripple effect, if you will. Yeah, and in fact, uh, we had a session um, on the main stage that I moderated uh, between Walmart, uh, Amazon, and also the uh, former Undersecretary of the of the Air Force for Energy and Renewables um, about getting to scale. And I and and my assumption was, you know, kind of, you know, when when Walmart or or Amazon or someone says jump, that the suppliers say how high. And and of course, it's not always that simple. And so the gap between a, a commitment like this by Walmart and actually implementing it. Um, which can involve finding substitutes that may not yet be exist or be cost effective or be have as great efficacy as the chemical it's replacing. Uh, these this could be kind of hard to do. It's not just make an announcement and all of a sudden everything shifts. So we'll keep watching this, and I'm sure that uh, lots of others will uh, activists in particular will be watching this and seeing how well they're able to execute. So Joel, sometimes it's the small steps, if you will, that that mean a lot. And I found your story this week. You did a great piece on CNA, which is a company I didn't know much about, but how CNA created the world's first cradle-to-cradle t-shirt. First of all, what brought your attention to this story what is it what's going on here that's that's so important well i mean i heard about this through uh jeff hogue who's their chief sustainability officer he used to be at mcdonald's uh in illinois and then he moved to amsterdam um or excuse me i think brussels uh where he's now based to take on this job for cna cna is a is a Dutch-based chain of retail clothing stores. It's named the CNA is named for uh, Clemens and August Brenkenmeyer. There's the two brothers who founded the company 176 years ago, and it's still privately owned by the Brenkenmeyer family now in its sixth generation of of, of Brenkenmeyer's. They've got around 2,000 stores in 23 countries, not in the U.S., but they're all th- throughout Europe as well as Brazil, China, and Mexico. And it competes with you know a lot of the so-called fast fashion retailers uh, like H and M and Zara. And this was sort of interesting. You know, we've been hearing about cradle to cradle. We've been hearing about circular economy. 
And there are really not a lot of examples that you can point to, particularly consumer products, that are cradle to cradle certified. Yeah, there's you know carpeting and a lot of office products and furnishings that uh, and building products that qualify, but not something that that you or I could buy. And so uh, they were inspired. The family uh, were inspired actually by Bill McDonough, who. Uh, who wrote the book along with Michael Brownkart called Cradle to Cradle, Remaking the Way We Make Things, to say, well, what can we do as a family, a family that's always been uh, fairly progressive from an environmental and social perspective, although they're also very notoriously private and highly secretive, and they've thought about making it a factory of the future. Maybe that's how we can, you know, uh, we can demonstrate this and model this. But is it well rather than making a factory, let's design a product that we run through all of our factories, uh, that or at least many of our factories that will make a product available. So they put out this T-shirt. It costs uh, seven euros, which is about eight bucks, a little over eight bucks. It's in, I think, 16 colors, cotton T-shirt. So no big deal at some level. But the story of how they did this and what it took and what they had to reinvent, things, little things you don't think of, like the thread that goes into you know, sewing a T-shirt is not made from cotton. It's made from nylon or polyester. And therefore, that makes the, renders the garment not uh, cradle to cradle because it all has to be something that you can either disassemble and put back into manufacturing, which you're not going to do with a t-shirt. More likely, you're going to either reuse it and, and until you can't use it, and then you can actually bury it into in the soil as compost, and it will be uh, benign and maybe even beneficial to the soil. So it's just a really interesting story of how a company thought about this and then did this, and then where it goes from here. So Joel, you already mentioned a couple of examples, but how challenging was this for the company and is this really something that they can scale? So I, uh, one of the interviews I did was uh, Donald Brunkingmeyer, who is uh, part of the family. is a fifth generation. He's 40 years old and he's one of, I think he said, 50 or 60 people in the fifth generation that are now part of the company, family members that are part of the company. And I asked him, uh, I said, um, you know, as you look back at this, was this harder than you thought, easier than you thought? What was that process like? And here's what he had to say. When we started out in August of 16 with a concrete idea, let us now make cradle-to-cradle T-shirts a reality, we didn't know whether it was possible. But we had a conviction that we could probably make something like this work. I would say it was what was critical in, in all of this was the selection of the right partners. So the selection of the suppliers in the very beginning was crucial because when it came to understanding the five goods um, and for example taking good energy we selected suppliers that had already invested into either solar power or wind power in terms of how they ran their their factories when it came to good water we already knew that they had invested in all of the ideal water treatment so that the water coming out of the production process would be safe to drink and the only water loss that we would have throughout the entire production would be uh, through evaporation when it came to good materials, we already were working with uh, 100% bio-cotton fabric, which would already meet the standards of, let's say, good materials, cradle-to-cradle certified. But what we didn't know was where do we stand with regards to all of the, on the one hand, 
the dye materials and how safe would they be and, and how and would there be any harmful substances in, in the dyes. So that was something that we needed to understand down to the molecular level. And for that, we needed to partner with, through Bill and his uh, innovation center, we had to partner with him. And secondly, we also didn't have a solution yet for something as simple as the stitching of a T-shirt. And most T-shirts, or I'd say almost all T-shirts in the world, have either a nylon or a polyester uh, stitching. And the difficulty with nylon or polyester is, is that the time it takes for these materials to either decompose or to separate out from a different raw material, the decomposition time is hundreds of years. And the separation out to be able to reuse and remake products afterwards is a very difficult process. So we had to develop and innovate super strong organic cotton threads that we would be able to use in our t-shirts. That was something we didn't know at the start. But once we got into discussions with the suppliers and through constant discussion, iteration, actually, I think it was having the continued conviction that it would be possible and being able to find solutions. We actually found relatively quickly that this would be possible. Working together with Star to develop and find at molecular level all of the materials that went into the dyes that were going to be used. That was also an unknown at the beginning, and relatively quickly we were able to find solutions that would work. So I think on, on, on these ones it was more a continued belief and conviction that it could be possible, continuing to iterate and say, let's go back and see if we can find another solution with the partners, and then realizing actually in a very short space of time that it would be possible this sort of created the momentum and belief that we would be able to bring to to market a product in a very short time. I mean, talking July, August 16, kickoff of the idea, and then the delivery of 400,000 t-shirts into European stores in June of 2017. That's a pretty fast, innovative cycle for developing something that is uh, that is groundbreaking. Another thing that I wanted to know was, Sort of why were they doing this? And in the sense of, is this a business opportunity? Do they see that by creating uh, a cradle-to-cradle T-shirt and then presumably going on to other kinds of garments that this is, was this about making a transformational change? Is this about creating, you know, making more money or moving more product? In other words, were there actual business fundamentals around doing this or was this kind of seen as let's make a lot of noise by doing good. And so I asked that of, of Jeff Hogue, the uh, chief sustainability officer, and um, here was his answer. I don't consider this a, an altruistic uh, movement at all. Uh, I would say that if there isn't a way to create more efficiency and better products and better lives for people and shared value for all of the players that need to connect with this movement, it, it, w- it would never be sustainable. So I think at the beginning, the the thought was, you know, what could this look like? And I think there was a realization that there are, I would say, very tangible benefits around having a circular model in terms of business value. I don't I don't feel that was that there was ever a disconnection between only doing good as opposed to, you know, coupling good with, you know, with with shared value and with uh, creating, you know, good solid business models that deliver for suppliers and that create better products at better prices and and those types of things. So, where do we go next, Joel? So they picked the t-shirt cuz it's 
obviously a very simple garment. There's only two or three different ingredients um, and uh, materials. And so now that they've got this down, they figured out how to do it and how to do it at scale. They put 400,000 in the market uh, on June 1st uh, throughout Europe. And now they're, they're uh, going to be adding Mexico and uh, Brazil. And, and they say they're selling very well, though they don't give out sales figures. Now they figure this out, they're going to get, well, let's, what's more complicated? Well, one thing that's complicated is to do T-shirts with patterns or embroidery. And then, well, what about things beyond T-shirts? Uh, can you get into more form-fitting clothing or underwear? And what requires finding a substitute for elastine, which is this elastic kind of thing that we all have in, in tight-fitting clothing or snug clothing that is not... It's a synthetic so uh, material, so can they find a natural substitute? Once they do that, that opens up the world from there. And then, you know, they keep going on and on. Maybe nightwear or some other things become next. But the interesting thing is that Donald Brankenmeyer said that he hopes, and this is not a company commitment, this is, again, a fifth-generation, 40-year-old uh, person who is uh, an executive in the company, uh, said that he hopes that, Fully half of CNA product introductions will be cradle-to-cradle certified within a decade. That's pretty significant because if they can do that at scale and make money, um, they will be, uh, I think, setting an example of what cradle-to-cradle, what a circular economy looks like, at least for the apparel industry, for the rest of the industry. So the other... uh topic we've been following far more closely is the green finance area, if you will. And I was uh, intrigued by a piece this week by Kerry Krasinski on the real impact of impact investing. And I, I appreciate the point uh, that while we're starting to make a dent in this, in this conversation, um, partly because corporate boards are, are far more interested, um, that we still have a, a long way to go. I, um, he makes the point that of the... Uh, of those that are, quote, putting into uh, impact investing, it's about $110 billion, right? So in, in the scheme of things, that's, that's a drop in the bucket, if you will. Uh, public companies are worth about $70 trillion. So this piece is really about what, will, what it'll take to make the conversation sort of more accessible to everyday investors, right? So making this, this rubric, if you will, part of the, the mutual funds and the exchange-traded funds that we all know and love and... And what, what will it take to get there? One step um, that some academics are taking is uh, something called the real impact tracker. So they've, they've got some investors that have taken a look at the, the actually the publicly available mutual funds and, and ETFs and trying to, to score them against that rubric. So we've, we're making progress, but still kind of a tangential area, if you will, like a, a, niche, a niche concern of the investing uh, community. Yeah, but this is still, I think, you know, kind of a big-ish deal. So Kerry was part of the team, Kerry Krasinski, who I've known a long time and who was one of the real pioneers in uh, the sustainable investing. I think this is sort of a, a, an important thing because right now, if you go invest through uh, Calvert or one of the other many other uh, socially responsible funds, they're basically screened out bad companies or they've screened in so-called good companies, however they define that based on some criteria that they've established. Um, but this uh, real impact tracker, I think, takes it to a new level showing the actual 
environmental and social impact of the funds, not just saying these are funds of so-called good companies. But but what's the difference between one fund and another, or between mutual funds and exchange-traded funds, ETFs, uh, and actually uh, scoring the environmental and social impact? So this is a new tool that was introduced. Um, it came out of an academic paper regarding the the best ways to to track impact. Um, so you can know that we've been tracking how many dollars are going into some of these screened funds, but we actually haven't been tracking, you know, how are these funds doing and how, how can you compare them from an environmental and social impact? We've only been tracking how they compare from a return on economic impact. So that's, that's interesting. And as you said, uh, this is starting, and we've talked about this, I think, in past episodes, starting to get traction in corporate boardrooms where all of a sudden this this very geeky thing called ESG, which is environmental, social, and governance, and a whole bunch of metrics around that, which used to be the plaything of, of these funds, is now something that lots of other investors, uh, big firms like Morningstar and uh, Standard & Poor's and some of the other large global financial services companies are starting to look at more closely how do you – track ESG data and, and how is that relative to financial returns. And so this is, I think, going to be something to watch. And I, uh, Carrie is always at the front end of this stuff. So I'll look forward to seeing what else they come up with and what kinds of results come out of this. What a difference five years makes. The first meeting of the Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance included maybe a dozen or so corporate energy buyers, developers, and NGOs interested in the cause of clean energy. The latest gathering, convened by the World Resources Institute, the World Wildlife Fund, BSR, and the Rocky Mountain Institute, attracted more than 400 buyers, service providers, developers, financiers, and others actively engaged in the procurement of renewables. I moderated the closing session of the summit, which featured three large organizations that have prioritized buying electricity generated by solar, wind, or other renewable generating sources. They were Facebook, Marriott International, and Goldman Sachs. I distilled that discussion into three snippets of advice for corporate buyers and strategists. Takeaway number one, Renewable energy mandates are helpful for building internal support. To prove that thesis, here's Bill Weil, Director of Sustainability at Facebook. We announced our 100% goal in December 2011, um, and, then we, and, the, and we have not put a date on the 100%, but then we've set intermediate milestones. So we set one of 25% in 2015. We hit 30-something. We, in 2015, we doubled that to 50% in 2018, so that's what we're currently marching toward. We were at 43% last year. Next year sometime we'll we'll probably set you know put the next post mile post out there and, and then go go after that. Um, but your to your question of how important it is, I think that my experience working on sustainability at a company like Facebook and working with our energy team is that you need some kind of mandate that you're going to as a company clean your energy mix and and we have a mandate to to help 
green the grid, not just our own mix in the process. Um, but without that mandate, then every deal you bring forward, you're going to get asked the question of, well, if we just went with brown power, you know, what would it cost? What's the premium? Um, we, we basically take clean energy as our, as our spec. That's what, that's what we have to go after. And we trust that we are going to be able to find solutions that are cost effective. Takeaway number two, you should be studying green tariffs far more closely, especially for new loads. And here's Harry Singh, vice president of Goldman Sachs. Even though it wasn't something that was applicable for our own PPA, um, I often talk to our clients uh, who have load in regulated states, no retail access, sometimes no organized market either. Uh, So green tariffs, I think, are a very useful tool. The challenges are, uh, you know, it's very easy to answer the question for somebody adding new load. Uh, right. There is no avoided cost calculation. But for existing load, as these programs scale up, uh, transparency on how that metric uh, is calculated will be key. Finally, takeaway number three, don't get used to today's procurement models because the future market will take a very, very different shape. Here's Marianne Balfe. Director of Energy and Environmental Sustainability for the Americas with Marriott International. Uh, you all know the, the biggest demographic generation coming, coming soon to a theater near you is the millennial generation. Um, they want to do business with companies that support their values, such as environmental sustainability. Um, from a talent acquisition and retention perspective, environmental sustainability is also a business imperative. We're going to be announcing our next generation 2025 sustainability goals um, at the end of the year, so keep, keep your eyes posted for that. For the first time, these will include renewable energy and carbon goals. So we're looking toward the future. Um, we know that everyone in this room is going to be impacted by this generation. Um, one of the ways we see this is peer-to-peer digitally charged solutions. There's a whole brain map behind this that we, don't, we can't see right now, that they're not revealing. I'm sure. I could be wrong. <laughs> but with microgrid blockchain technologies, the whole market, uh, buyers uh, to sellers, communication and connection is a very real, um, it's a reality that will certainly be, be coming online more readily in the near future. GreenBiz recently partnered with UPS to look at the impact of logistics, things like warehousing, transportation, and the the delivery of goods on dense urban environments and some of the solutions and strategies that can contribute to a more environmentally sustainable city center. It's a question of growing interest in a world where same-day delivery has become an expectation for so many of us, with so many vehicles prowling the streets, will there be room for the rest of us? And here to talk about the report and its impact are Tom Madrecki, Director of Urban Innovation and Mobility at UPS, and Dr. Matthias Winkenbach, Director of MIT Megacity Logistics Lab. Tom, talk a little bit about the report findings. What surprised you most in what the report came out with? Well, I think that the the really fascinating thing to me is um, somebody that's uh, just like in this space all of the time, um, and obviously I personally care about the issues, UPS cares about these issues, but in the report we found that 95% of businesses um, surveyed recognized the sort of just this challenge of growing cities. 
And to me, that really speaks volumes because I don't think that urbanization typically is like something that's trending on a risk mitigation report. For companies to recognize that cities are um, really important when it comes to the, the, the challenges of future growth and of like how they'll continue to address issues like air quality or traffic congestion, I think is the, a really important first step. And it sounds like not that uh, as many companies as they were concerned have actually uh, done anything to prepare to address these things. Tom, uh, is that a problem? Well, I think that, that honestly, it's one of those issues too that's also, um, as it sort of like trends up in, in people's awareness, it's still something that's very sort of early on um, in in terms of how even cities themselves are approaching the issue, especially when it comes to um, issues around delivery congestion or around uh, freight demand, because that issue in and of itself isn't always incorporated into planning processes or into the discussion that's, that's going on around personal mobility. And so it's definitely like a, a newer area of, of research and analysis and of cities developing in collaboration with companies of developing those solutions that will make for a better and brighter future. Matthias, uh, to talk a little bit about how MIT the, at the Mega City Logistics Lab is is looking at this. So what are some of the uh, things you're looking at and, and thinking about? So our lab luckily partners uh, with both sides uh, that need to be on the table in this discussion. So both with the private sector, um, so with retailers, with manufacturers who have to bring goods or services into those large and increasingly congested urban centers, as well as with the public sector side. So for instance, the cities or the regulators that are the ones deciding where to build the appropriate infrastructure, where to build, for instance, regulation with regards to vehicle access restrictions, um, and also how to enforce uh, those regulations uh, in the cities that most urgently need them. And it's interesting to see that the awareness of, let's say, the challenges of urban logistics is increasing on both sides. And also the awareness of, for instance, using uh, advanced uh, methods of data analytics to actually find better solutions to the impending uh, uh, questions. Obviously, most companies and especially most cities are kind of lacking the methodological tool set to really dive into these analysis in depth. And that's, I believe, where we as academics can create uh, the most value, helping both sides to get to the same table and to use the right methods to find uh, better answers. Talk a little little bit about the growth you anticipate. Uh, Are we just getting going? At what point do we sort of hit, uh, for lack of a better term, peak logistics? Well, I mean, urbanization is obviously um, a key trend that has been going on for the last couple of years and is also expected to continue. We right now have, uh, I believe, around 30 so-called megacities with more than 10 million people on this planet. I think by 2030, the UN projects this number to be way beyond 50. And so the growth of cities and especially the growth of uh, density uh, in those cities will continue. Uh, And there's no real peak that is foreseeable in the near future. So the problems that we see today with urban logistics and efficiently managing both goods movement and personal mobility of the citizens will keep increasing, will keep uh, getting worse. Um, So it's time that both the public sector and the private sector work together on finding better solutions to to make both things work at the same time. Tom Madrecki, talk a little bit about how UPS is approaching this, because there's there's several components here. One is the types of vehicles, uh, right-sizing vehicles uh, from, I guess, even bicycle messenger type vehicles to obviously the big brown trucks. 
Uh, there's the technology around route optimization, things like that. And then there's the, the policy part that we're just working with cities to figure out uh, what some of the solutions are. Where are the biggest needs in terms of do we have the technologies do we, that we need? Are there policies that we should be doing? Where do you approach this? It seems very complex. Well, actually, um, Joel, if you look at the report, um, there's a part where um, we ask companies to just look at um, what do they identify as sort of the, the biggest barriers to more efficient and sustainable urban logistics. And I think another one of the surprising things of the report is that even companies that aren't engaged in the space on a daily basis basically hit the nail on the head where you have insufficient collaboration across sectors, lack of critical investment in infrastructure, and lack of investments in innovative solutions. Now, to each of those things, UPS is is doing something. UPS has a long history, for example, of really optimizing our own operations. You know, we're the company that doesn't make less turns or that measures how long it takes a driver to put a seatbelt on or deploys uh, a really innovative system like Orion to minimize uh, miles driven. But amid all of that like internal optimization, there's still, to answer any of these issues, no single company can do it alone. Um, and that's where partnership with cities really becomes important, um, especially because each city itself is different. And so really figuring out what a city wants to achieve, working with them to achieve those goals, many of which are mutually beneficial to companies, is, is really the, the key ingredient here. If a city wants to become more walkable and bikeable, sustainable, to have a better quality of life for its residents, it also needs to have efficient and uh, effective delivery services that sort of undergird that quality of life as a kind of, I guess, like almost like a, a hidden infrastructure of sorts that supports that quality of life in cities and that allows uh, its residents to get packages to uh, for restaurants and retail to get their goods, for manufacturers to get sort of the widgets and, and inputs that go into their own system. And so it's really about that collaboration and just being at the same table, being transparent in, in voicing uh, what needs to be done or wh- what goals cities have. Uh, and then, then, then we can have that conversation about what's the right technology or the right innovation to apply to that particular problem set. Matthias, is there any uh, city in the world that's sort of getting it right yet? Well, it's, that's um, hard to say. I mean, we do. there's probably not one role model city. Um, Boston is, I mean, we're, we're based in Boston here, so I have to praise Boston. But Boston is probably pretty far ahead at uh, like working with both the private sector and with NGOs, with academic uh, partners, to really figure out like an integrated plan for urban mobility that combines people mobility with freight mobility. They have a test site here where they are, for instance, already piloting the use of autonomous taxis, basically. We are right now talking to the city of Boston and a couple of other players of coming up with a, uh, basically, uh, a methodology to assess the impact of future technology changes like the introduction of autonomous vehicles, for instance, on the overall traffic dynamics in that city. And we're also trying to come up with a better way of planning the future of freight flows into that city. So Boston is really forward-thinking in that sense. Um, But there's other cities around the world that have similar initiatives. Um, And typically, um, we always encourage city officials to start small, to, let's say, um, solve one problem at a time, do one pilot at a time, and uh, work with the necessary stakeholders involved. So not only come up with a solution by themselves, but really talk to, for instance, the industry players that would be affected by a new regulation or talk to academics who are the experts uh, in that particular field to come up with a solution that works for everyone. Well, it makes sense you'd be working in your backyard. Tom, you did a TED Talk about designing cities for happiness. First of all, tell us a little about what that means. But 
Can you connect that to this whole issue of urban logistics? Uh, sure, I actually can. What I sort of meant by that is that, you know, cities, you know, so the, the buzzword of the day is quality of life or becoming more walkable, bikeable, shareable, sustainable. There's like a whole litany of things that sort of out in that public realm and, and how mayors are talking and how their staffs are talking. But what it really comes down to is that the residents that are that are becoming urbanized, the people that are moving back into city centers, they want to live the best life possible. And they want to, you know, feel that sort of like that satisfaction or that happiness. And so how do you as a city think about your residents' needs and their feelings, their sort of like emotional outlook to the world? And the best way of doing that really is to get a really good understanding of what those residents want, right? But so if you you want people to be happy, you have to understand what it is that they, what would make them happy or what, what they would want, except for the fact that planning departments and just the general way of gathering public opinion, especially in America, I think is, is really hard and it's really difficult and it, and it isn't always done in like necessarily the best way to get uh, the, be- the best diversity of opinion. And so the planning process overall has to incorporate better sort of uh, outreach strategies communication for, for planning departments and, and city officials to recognize that what they're engaging in is inherently something like a political process, um, that they're asking somebody to walk alongside them in a vision for the future. And they need to get their buy-in. They need to get their support. And so just changing how that conversation is had between cities and their its own residents will help cities get a better picture of what its residents want which then helps to inform those ultimate strategies to how do you manage transportation or how do, how do your residents want to get around or what would help them achieve their own goals about reduced commute time. Commute times are not the ultimate sort of like answer, like that's not the thing that's going to make them happy. Maybe spending more time with their family or having a more productive workday is actually what would make them happy. And so really pinning down what it is that they want and then working back from that uh, really helps city officials get to that that big, brighter vision of the future that we all talk about. Sometimes happiness is just finding a parking space. Well, thanks, gentlemen, for this. This is a great <laughs> topic, and uh, I encourage people to download the report. We'll link to it. Tom Madrecki is Director of Urban Innovation and Mobility at UPS, and Dr. Matthias Winkenbach, Director of the MIT Megacity Logistics Lab. Thank you both for talking to me. Thank you. This is Heather in New Jersey, where I am going through all of my notes from the Verge 17 conference. I had the privilege of leading two tracks this year, the Corporate Renewable Energy Procurement Sessions, as well as the Urban Mobility and Connected Transportation Panels. So I had an opportunity to catch up with several of my speakers during the event. And I wanted to leave you with a conversation that I had with Lewis Stewart, the Chief Innovation Officer for Sacramento. I spoke with Lewis about a number of topics, starting with what does a Chief Information Officer do? So my role is is kind of a change agent. So you step into uh, a municipality and you start looking at infrastructure, you start looking at workforce development, you start looking at just kind of some of the processes in and around the city and seeing what you can bring uh, to take the city to the next level. Um, So part of that right now for me is how do you get Sacramento to be a destination city? So infrastructure, physical, digital, I mean, what is, is is it all of the above? It's it's all of the above. So it's it's roads and lights, it's technology, uh, inclusivity, 
It's uh, even just lighting up City Hall so that City Hall is a demonstration site for innovators and entrepreneurs to be able to show the viability of their products and services. You're here talking about transportation strategy. Yeah. What is your primary concern right now when it comes to electric vehicles and autonomous vehicles? It's, it's a big buzz throughout the valley, City right. Valley, or the right, valley. Right, right. Sacramento, like, what's your view on this? So look, it, mobility is, is at the, the baseline for all economic development in any city around the world. If you can't get people to places, they can't work. They can't be productive members of society. So talking about transportation is, is foundational to economic development, whether it be underrepresented communities, whether it be kids uh, getting to, to school and, and learning, uh, even on the healthcare side. You know, if, if you can't show up to an appointment, uh, the, the hospital loses money, you don't get the care that you need, you know, so mobility and transportation is key. How can Sacramento use these new technologies, these new transportation technologies to build new services, to build new economic opportunities? Are there specific things you're looking at? So yeah, so one, we're trying to change the narrative around Sacramento from a government town to what's called the Sacramento Urban Technology Lab, where we actually light up all eight districts in the city and try to figure out what use cases we can connect people to in order to, to get K through 12 involved in technology, in order to look at dislocated workers and get them involved in, in what's coming. So if, if they're technicians, how do they start working on autonomous cars? How did, where's the education coming from? Working with university partners to get them involved as, as workforce incentive partners so they can actually show up and talk to companies and make sure that the companies understand that they're producing a workforce that they, they need. And also looking at the, the kind of student population and saying you should stay in Sacramento right. because there's a future here for you. <laughs> okay. And how much is the private sector involved in this right now? And how much more do you need them to be involved? Look, public-private partnerships, I think, are key. And I, you know, I know that's a buzzword that people heard in 80s, 90s, early 2000s. But right now, I think you have uh, the right time uh, for a lot of those conversations to actually take place. So I understand that a lot of private sector companies are kind of on the sidelines trying to see where regulation ends up. Um, but this is actually the, an appropriate time to come sit down and actually have conversations with the city of San Jose, with Sacramento, uh, with Los Angeles, and help jointly create what the regulations should be for your technology, for your service. Um, because I think you'll find that there, there's an audience and an appetite uh, for what's being offered these days. How much is the concept of equity and inclusiveness part of the, in particular, the new transportation vision for the Sacramento area, if you will, the Sacramento region? Sure. I think if, you know, if, if we're trying to get into the, the tech conversation uh, that you have here in, in the Bay Area and Silicon Valley, um, we need to, we only have a limited workforce that can address that currently. If we're able to equitably start in, including people into the innovation ecosystem, um, so from underrepresented parts of Sacramento, and bring them into the workforce, right. we can actually multiply our workforce at least by half, uh, almost instantaneously, uh, if, we, if, the, if we put the programming and services around them as well, that actually catches them up to speed on time. So equity is, 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 like a, is, is kind of at the core, right next to mobility. Uh, as far as getting people to jobs, getting people home, uh, getting people to healthcare, getting people to their just general services, um, but also being able to showcase uh, what a diverse and dynamic city uh, Sacramento is. So your main priority for next week, 
or from three months from now, sure. what, is it, what, what is it you really need to focus on first in this innovation role to make the progress and change you want to see? So look, so for me as a chief innovation officer, it's all about relationships. Uh, if I don't have the relationships I need to bring the resources to bear, um, you know, there's, there's no success that can be had. So it's working with the mayor, working with city manager in Sacramento to get them uh, on board with some of the ideas and concepts I come up with, but then pulling in some of the relationships and, and resources that, that I have over years of experience so that we can actually have real conversations in Sacramento. That, you know, we're, we're actually in the game. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, you can go to greenbiz.com slash 350, and you'll find more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned in this episode. Send us an email with feedback, ideas, gossip, whatever you got, 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love to hear from you. Thanks to GreenBiz 350 director Stephanie Joyce and GreenBiz managing editor Elsa Wenzel. We'll be back here next week for another edition of GreenBiz 350. From all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. <laughs>